0: Hello, and welcome to this ELO podcast. In this episode, you will hear Phil Bisher, founder of Big Idea Productions, Jellyfish Labs, and the creator and storyteller behind Veggie Tales give a talk entitled, Me, Myself, and Bob, Lessons Learned from the Rise and Fall of a Big Idea. This conversation occurred at the ELO Forum in Vancouver on November 7th, 2018. We're good. Or you might know me better as a somewhat uptight British asparagus. Or maybe you'll know me best as a cantankerous decorative gourd who sings about cheeseburgers. (laughs) Or a really big zucchini that just loves bunnies. Or maybe you know me best as the voice that says, And now it's time for Silly Songs with Larry, the part of the show where Larry comes out and sings a silly song. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So I was born in uh, Muscatine, Iowa, a town of about 25,000 people on the banks of the Mississippi River. In a very, 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 very Christian family, my uh, family is uh, very committed Christian going back at least four generations on either side. My uh, great-grandfather was the first non-denominational radio preacher in America, we believe, who went on the air in 1923 on the radio in Omaha, Nebraska, and preached every Sunday morning on the radio until 1964, at which point his radio show was the oldest, longest-running radio show in America. Um, So I grew up in an environment of uh, ambitious ministry slash up-in-front-on-the-radio crossover, almost showbiz. My mom was playing the piano live on the radio when she was five years old, accompanying her little brother who was singing a solo at the age of three. It was kind of an odd upbringing, uh, but it made me who I am. And growing up, I was always a kind of a dreamer. I was the kid who, I was introverted. I wasn't you know, doing student government. I certainly wasn't going out for the football team. I was in the basement taking apart super eight millimeter projectors trying to build an optical printer So I could do what I would just seen in Star Wars I wanted to shoot model spaceships and put them in front of starry backgrounds and and then animate with stop-motion Animation, you know little guys fighting and GI Joes and and Legos and clay and and I just loved Building worlds in my mind and then trying to reproduce them somehow tangibly in front of me. That's what got me motivated Motivated. So I was a dreamer, and, and which was fitting because I grew up in America, which is, you know, all countries have national birds and national trees, but America has a national dream, the American dream, and we're taught from a very young age to follow our dreams and chase our dreams and never let go of our dreams and go to Disney World because that's where dreams come true. And then as you get older, you think, that's just for kids. No, it's not. If you watch almost any financial services, TV commercials, say, your dream is out there. We will help you finance it. Your dream is out there. We will insure it for you. Is your dream safe with us? Uh, we love dreams. So I want to ask you a very simple question. Have you ever had a dream? And if you say, yeah, I was at my high school reunion in my underwear, It's not the kind of dream I'm talking about. See, unlike a lot of words, the the word dream has more than one meaning, which can make it a little bit confusing. In fact, according to Webster, it has four. A dream, number one, a series of thoughts, images, or emotions occurring during sleep, number two, an experience of waking life having the characteristics of a dream. Number three, something that is notable for its beauty, excellence, or enjoyable quality. And number four, a strongly desired goal or purpose. So the whole high school reunion underwear thing, that's a type one dream, something that occurs in your mind during sleep. I'm talking about a type four dream, a strongly desired goal or purpose, or to to put it another way, a deep longing for a specific dream outcome. Have you ever had a dream? I have. Now, unlike many Americans, my dream wasn't for money or power or fame or success or my own reality TV show. My dream was for impact. I wanted my stories to make the world a better place. I wanted to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ through DVD players or VHS cassettes or movie screens or or whatever sort of screen I could get my hands on. And as of 2001, all of my dreams were coming true. Now, VeggieTales is something that on paper makes no sense at all. It is a series of children's videos where limbless talking vegetables reenact Bible stories. (laughs) Try raising money with that pitch. It was created by a guy who got kicked out of Bible college after only three semesters for failing chapel. A guy who had no money, no connections, and no idea what he was getting himself into. And then somehow, quite unexpectedly, VeggieTales became not only the best-selling Christian direct-to-video series in history, but ultimately the best-selling direct-to-video series of any kind in history, with more than 65 million videos sold to date. But the VeggieTales phenomenon went way beyond just the sale of VHS cassettes and DVDs. Teenagers and college kids embraced Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber. VeggieTales parties spread crowded up across the US and college campuses first at Christian colleges like you might expect but ultimately at places like the University of Michigan and Texas A&M a CNN poll at one, fo- at one point found that VeggieTales was among the top 10 most watched videos on college campuses nationwide <laughs> Larry the cucumber t-shirts were cited at dance clubs in downtown Chicago Perhaps most astonishingly, VeggieTales was directly parodied in a two-minute animated spoof on Saturday Night Live and has been referenced by four different episodes of The Simpsons. Just last year, if you watched Saturday Night Live, uh, when uh, Melissa McCarthy was doing Sean Spicer, if you remember that. Um, She did one episode where she decided she needed to tell the press a Bible story about Pharaoh and Moses, and to tell the story, she held up a Bob the Tomato and a Larry the Cucumber plush, (laughs) because for some reason, that was the first thing that the staff thought of when they thought telling a Bible story was talking vegetables. Vegetails was an enormous success. It was my dream come true. It was a great story too. Small town kid from Iowa makes it big, beats the odds and becomes a huge success. Changes the way people think about talking vegetables. The story of VeggieTales is the kind of story that we love to hear. And it's the story that People Magazine wanted to hear. It's the story that Time and Newsweek wanted to hear. It's the story that the Wall Street Journal wanted to hear and, and put on the front page under a headline that said, Move over, Barney the Dinosaur. Here comes Bob the Tomato. It was a great story, but it isn't the story I'm going to tell you tonight. I'm going to tell you a different story. And it isn't really a story about VeggieTales at all. It's a story about... Me. Um, Like a lot of you, I imagine, I I grew up deep in the evangelical Christian subculture. My uh, mom was the choir director of our local church in Iowa. My dad was the Sunday school superintendent. He filled in in the pulpit when the pastor was out of town. My grandfather would trade off with him and be the head of the ushers or the Sunday school superintendent or whatever needed to be done at the church. One of my family was usually doing it. We were there whenever the church was open, Sunday morning, Sunday night prayer meetings, Wednesday night. Uh, Awana clubs, potlucks, church picnics. If the doors were open, we were probably inside. My great grandfather uh, also started a Bible and Missionary Conference in Northwest Iowa back in 1935 that is still happening today for seven days every August in Northwest Iowa. And for the first 25 years of my life or so, I never missed a year at the Bible Conference. So growing up at Bible and Missionary Conferences and in church, there are certain Christian y phrases. That sort of stick with you. Phrases like, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. They're better when they rhyme. (laughs) That phrase really hit me. If the only things that mattered were the things that I did for Christ, well then that I needed to do things for Christ. I wanted to have a life that mattered, just like my grandparents' lives had mattered and my great-grandparents' lives had mattered. I wanted to have a life that mattered, too. But there was another christian phrase that stuck to me as a kid. You've probably heard it, too. God can't steer a parked car. They might not have been Scripture technically, but they sure smelled like Scripture. So if God really couldn't steer a park car, and if the only things that mattered were the things that I did for Christ, well then I needed I needed to get busy. I didn't want to be a park car. I had to start pedaling. I had to start. I just I had to start going. I had to start doing stuff. I had to get busy. I grew up uh, uh, knowing that I had some ability to tell stories. I made my first animated film when I was about nine years old and by 14 that I knew that I was going to make movies someday and that would be my work for Christ. That's what I would do that would make my grandparents rise up and say, ah, he's one of the good ones. So, I uh, decided to go to Bible college and then film school. And I never made it to film school, and after three semesters of Bible college, I was invited not to come back with my new friend Mike Naraki. We were both disinvited to continue our Bible education. Uh, we had failed chapel. So I came back to Chicago and got a job in video production. And after a few years, I'd managed to learn the world of video production, doing corporate training videos for some of the big companies in the Chicago area, Montgomery Ward and Amoco and neither of which exists. So apparently the videos weren't very good. Um, I think I did some for Sears too, now that I think of it. Well, that was not feeling very good about myself right now. So I managed to learn this world of video production, but I also was introduced to this new budding world of computer animation. This was the late 1980s, way before Pixar and Toy Story had happened. And I thought, okay, I think I can find in here the tools I need to tell my stories. Somewhere in here, because I loved computers, and I loved animation, and they were coming together, and you could make stuff without having to work with a whole bunch of people, because I liked computers a lot more than I liked people. And I thought, if I could just do this with computers, I'm a shy kid, then maybe I can carry the gospel in the same way that my grandparents carried the gospel on the radio, or my great-uncle carried the gospel into the jungles of Erie and Jaya in the 1930s to take it to cannibals, which terrified the death out of me. Um, so I started uh, in, let's see, 1993, with money from friends and family and the help of just two other guys, I produced the very first episode of Tales, an odd little video starring vegetables that loved God. We didn't sell very many copies. I tried to sell it direct. I took out ads in Christian parenting magazines with these smiling vegetables at the bottom of an article about Christian parenting and thinking, the whole world is going to line up and make a path to my door. And we sold about 500 copies, which didn't even pay for the ads. Uh, much less the production. But uh, Christian publishers noticed the ad, and they called our 800 number that I'd set up for the animators to answer and placed orders. And before long, we had set up a distributor, and we had a video in Christian bookstores. And for about a year, parents walked through and said, hmm, vegetables telling Bible stories. I don't think so. Let's see what James Dobson has. But slowly, gradually, what happened is in a lot of these Christian bookstores, and this was the peak of Christian retailing, of the Christian bookstore movement in North America, there were thousands of Christian bookstores and they were actually successful, of course there were also tens of thousands of bookstores that were successful at that time, those are all gone too, Um, but college kids worked in Christian bookstores and because they were kids and, you know, they're not very responsible, they weren't allowed to touch important things like the Bibles, so they had to work in the back in the kids' departments. So these college kids are working in the backs of the store in the kids' departments and everyone was buying VHS players to set up in the back, because so, now there's n- new videos coming out just for Christian kids and it would be a guy with a hand puppet and a, 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 a guitar and then VeggieTales came out, and the college kids took home the VeggieTales video and washed it back in their dorm rooms and laughed their heads off and came back and then took Mr. Hand Puppet out and put in VeggieTales. And the backs of Christian bookstores became VeggieTales theaters almost overnight. And now Mom came in and said, what do you have new for my kids? And I said, you got to check this out, it's hilarious. And that's how VeggieTales uh, grew. So before long, we had sold, it was about 1994, we'd sold a million videos. And then we sold 3 million, and then we sold 5 million, and then 10 million videos, and we started getting letters, as many as 400 a day from as far away as Australia, mostly from parents who wanted to tell us what a difference we were having in the lives of their kids. God was using my efforts. Lives were being touched. So I decided it was time to to dream bigger, to pedal faster. I figured if I could have this much impact just by making videos think of the impact I could have if I built the next Disney. Of course, I uh, realized that would make me the next Walt. I kind of liked the sound of that. Turns out, so did a lot of other people. I met with artists from places like Disney and DreamWorks and Warner Brothers, and some of them said, hey, he could be the next Walt and the Christian Walt. This is what we've been waiting for all these years. And they wanted to sign up for the ride. So I hired all of them, and I put them moved them all to the suburbs of Chicago and put them all to work on all these projects I'd set into motion. We started producing books, records, computer games, toys, a live touring show, shows at theme parks, and even our own feature film. By the year 2000, we'd gone from three people on staff to more than 200. We were the biggest animation studio in America in between the coasts. We'd just been named one of 10 studios to watch in worldwide animation by Animation Magazine, and I had just been named one of 10 people to watch uh, in worldwide religion on a PBS special. It's pretty good for a Bible college dropout. Right about then, everything started to go wrong. The management team I'd put together to grow the company had done a wonderful job of hiring a whole bunch of people and launching a whole bunch of projects, but they couldn't get along with each other and they couldn't get along with me. I was the shy kid. I was in the basement not doing student government. I didn't know how to manage people. They were type A aggressive. I was not, very much not we didn't know even how to speak the same language. So we argued about things for months, seemingly simple things like, do we classify our core customer as Christian parents or moral active parents? Do we need to do cross-sectional studies of who's watching these videos so we know how to spend our marketing dollars? And everything started getting more complex and then, without warning, our sales stopped growing. Uh, For seven straight years, sales had more than doubled every year. That can be kind of addictive. They completely stopped growing. Apparently, there was a ceiling as to how many families in North America were interested in religious vegetable movies, and we hit that ceiling. So in April of the year 2000, I realized everything I had built was in very real danger of collapsing around me. I realized I had to do something I'd promised myself I would never do. I had to let people go. So from 210 down to 180, down to 140, down to 100, every round of layoffs broke my heart. Every face that had come in beaming with enthusiasm, people that had pulled their kids out of school in places like Burbank, California or Orlando, Florida from the animation studios there and relocated to Lombard, Illinois, found new schools, new churches, came to work for me, counting on me had to go back. There were no other animation jobs in the area. They had to pull their kids out of school again and move back to the coasts. In the middle of all that, we released our first feature film, Jonah, a VeggieTales movie. And even though it was only supposed to do about this much at the box office, it was, after all, an independent religious vegetable movie, not a booming category in Hollywood. Even though it was only supposed to do about this much at the box office, I thought, okay, if it does does double that, I could hire everyone back and I can keep this dream alive. And God could do that, right? Because he could do anything. He could just snap his fingers and he could do that, but he didn't. And then the home video came out, and I thought, okay, well, that's really where all the money is in a kid's movie. So even though it was only supposed to sell about this many DVDs, I thought, okay, if it sells twice that many, then I can hire everybody back and I can keep this going. And God could do that because he can do anything. He could do that. But he didn't. And in the middle of that, a former distributor took us to court claiming we'd breached a verbal agreement. We knew we were in the right, but they refused to settle, so I had to spend two and a half weeks sitting in a federal courtroom in Dallas, Texas, wearing a suit and a tie, which for an artist is the third level of hell. (laughs) And as I sat there listening to the opposing lawyer paint me as a liar, all I could think was, okay, God. I think I can still keep this together somehow. I can still keep this going, keep this dream alive. If you will just show up in this courtroom and show the jury the truth in this situation. And he could have, but he didn't. The jury gave them everything they were asking for and more, $12 million in damages. And walking out of court that day, I knew that it was over, that it was my third strike, and that I was out. I knew my company, Big Idea Productions, would have no choice but to file bankruptcy, and that everything I had built in the prior 14 years, every character I had created, every story I had told, every song I had written would be sold at an auction to the highest bidder to pay as much of our debt as possible. It was right about then that a big Christian university called and asked if I would deliver their spring commencement address. I had to say no. I didn't know what I would say because I had no idea how God could just stand back from something that was doing so much good and watch it fall apart. And then I started hearing his whispers. Actually, they'd started uh, about 18 months before then when I got an email from a woman I'd never met who I don't believe had ever met me. She thanked me for the work I was doing and congratulated me on my impact, but then closed by saying, But keep an eye on your pride. And I thought, well, that's a little forward. You've never even met me. The emails kept coming every month, every other month. I'm glad things are going so well for you. Of course, by then they weren't, but she didn't know that. But keep an eye on your pride. Then in the spring of 2003, just before the lawsuit went to trial, we had one last prayer meeting at Big Idea. The company was down to just 65 people from 210, and only 13 showed up at the prayer meeting because everyone was just so depressed. But the 13 of us prayed fervently for Big Idea Productions, that God would save Big Idea Productions, would would keep this dream alive, that God would give Phil the wisdom to be able to save Big Idea. But in the middle of that, there was a woman who was the wife of one of our Disney artists who was an amazing prayer warrior, but she was silent through the whole prayer meeting. And then after it was done and everyone was leaving, she came up to me and said, I think God has something for me to say to you. I said, okay. She said, I don't think this is about God and big idea. I think this is about God and Phil. And before it's over, she said, I think you might have to say goodbye to all of us. She turned and walked out the room. I couldn't breathe. I didn't know what to do with that. How could it not be about Big Idea Productions? It was everything. It was was how I was going to change the world for Christ. It was the work I'd been doing for 14 years, almost killing myself. I didn't know what to do with that. Then God got tired of whispering and decided it was time to just speak plainly. I told you about my great-grandfather's Bible conference in Iowa. Well, by then, I hadn't been in a few years because I got busy, and there's no time for a Bible conference in Iowa. But that year, my mom was the director of the conference. She said, you should come this year. The speakers are going to be great. You just take a break. Come out to Iowa for a week. It's going to be great. Come on. And I almost did, and I thought, no, I'm going bankrupt, and that really takes it out of you. (laughs) It does. You should try it. So, so she went out to the Bible conference and came back and handed me a cassette tape. Remember cassette tapes? They were the rectangular CDs. Remember, remember CDs? No. Yeah. Uh, she came back and handed me a cassette tape and said, "I think this is for you." It was a sermon preached by an old family friend, a pastor named Richard Porter. He was actually a pastor at that time in the Vancouver area, although he's originally from Iowa. And he started out his message uh, by saying, what does it mean when God gives you a dream and the dream comes to life and he shows up in it and then without warning, the dream dies? What does that mean? And I thought, okay, you have my attention. (laughs) He went on to tell his story. So he was a pastor at that time somewhere around here. Uh, maybe Abbotsford we think. Someone was just telling me that they had heard of him, they knew of him. and he had spent 18 months, this is the very early 2000s, he had spent 18 months leading a revival effort, and they were, there were churches that were trying to work together in the greater Vancouver area, and they'd had some kind of a big worship service, and churches had come together, and, and it was really looked like it was going to be something, and they were planning another one and another one, and he said he was sure any day he was going to get a phone call from Christianity Today magazine saying, we hear something amazing is happening in Vancouver, tell us all about it. And then without warning, 9-11 happened. happened. And everyone got distracted, and the whole thing just died. And he was so burnt out, so physically exhausted and disappointed that he literally could not get out of bed. His doctors told him he should take 12 months off. His elders told him he could have nine. And day after day, he lay in bed, wrestling with God, saying, if this is what it's like to work for you, I don't think I can do it anymore. And in the middle of that dark time, he went to church with his daughter, and his daughter's pastor preached a sermon on the story of the Shunammite woman from 2 Kings chapter 4. I'm sure you all know that, the Shunammites, very popular Bible (laughs) story, probably decorated your nurseries with Shunammite woman wallpaper borders, no? Okay. The Shunammite woman was a wealthy woman in Israel, and every time Elisha would come through the area, she would cook for him. Apparently, she was a good cook because he started stopping by a lot. So she goes to her husband and says, we should build a room on the roof for Elisha, which back then was a compliment. Um, So now he could come by, have a meal, and take a nap, every pastor's dream. Uh, (laughs) Elisha was so appreciative that he calls her in one day and says, you've been so kind to me. What can I do for you? What do you need? She says, I don't need anything. I have a home among my people. But Elisha's servant comes to him and says, well, sir, her husband is very old, and she has no son, meaning in that culture, in that day, before long, she would be destitute. So Elisha calls her in and says, a year from now, you will hold a son. And you can see how deep that longing is in her, that dream was for her. By her response, she says, don't lie to your servant. And she's not calling Elisha a liar. What she's really saying is, don't go there. Don't touch that. Don't even wake that dream up. Elisha says, no, a year from now, you will hold a son. Sure enough, a year later, she's holding a baby boy, and you can imagine how much she loves that boy, because not only is he her son, but this is the dream. This is the promise she got from God. And then one day, as the boy's growing up, he goes out to his father in the field and says, Dad, my head hurts. Like most dads, his dad says, go find your mother. (laughs) So it's in the Bible. It's biblical. So, So the boy goes to find his mother, the Shunammite woman, crawls up in her lap, curls up, and dies. And there she is holding the dream God gave her dead in her arms. She takes him up to Elisha's room and she puts him on Elisha's bed. And then she goes to find Elisha. He sees her coming in the distance and says, is everything all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right? She says, everything's all right. But she explains what's happened and and he says, okay, here's what you do. Take my staff and go with my servant back to your son and lay my staff on your son. She says, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. He says, okay, I'll come too. So Elisha comes back with her. He goes up alone to the room. He kneels and prays. And then he lies down on top of the boy, hand to hand, nose to nose. And the boy sneezes three times and wakes up. Elisha brings him back downstairs and hands him back to his mother. That's the story of the Shunammite woman. What is the point of that? (laughs) Why would God put that poor lady through that exercise? What the young pastor said that day was that if God gives you a dream and breathes life into it and shows up in it and then it dies, it may be that God wants to know what is more important to you, the dream or Him. The Shunammite woman's response is clear. She heads straight to Elisha. He's the man of God, and she wants to be as close to God as she can. When he says, Is everything all right? she says, Everything's all right. But when he says, Go back to your son with my servant, she says, As surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. She doesn't understand what's going on, but she's going to hang on to God no matter what. C.S. Lewis said, He who has God plus many things has nothing more than he who has God alone. And I can understand that if I think about he who has God plus a brand new car has nothing more than he who has God alone, or he who has God plus a big shiny house has nothing more than he who has God alone. But if God is infinite and infinitely capable of meeting your needs entirely with himself, you can't add to infinite. Nothing plus God is more than God alone. So you have to put everything in that space. He who has God plus a warm, healthy marriage has nothing more than he who has God alone. And the one that really knocked me flat, he who has God plus an amazing ministry reaching millions of lives around the world has nothing more than he who has God alone. My friend Rick's conclusion. If God gives you a dream, and the dream comes to life, and God shows up in it, and then suddenly without warning the dream dies, it may be that God wants to see what is more important to you, the dream, or him. And once he has seen that, you may get back your dream, or you may not, and you may live the rest of your life without it. But that'll be okay, because you'll have God. His truth washed over me like I was standing under a waterfall. And then I thought about Abraham. Abraham had a dream. He had, had a promise. From you I will bring a great nation and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea and all that. And I'm sure Abraham was excited, but there was also somewhere inside him a voice saying, yeah, God, but I don't even have a son. So God said, okay, we'll start there. Along comes Isaac, and you can imagine how much Abraham loves Isaac, because this is the promise. This is how he's going to use him to reach the world. And then one day God shows up and says, hey, Abraham, what do you love more, me or your dream? Well, you, that's easy, you. Okay, put him on the altar, kill him. But he's the the promise, he's how you're using me to bless the whole world. What do you mean? Put him on the altar. Kill him. And what God learned about Abraham that day is that Abraham would let go of everything before he would let go of God. And God said, okay, now I can use you. Suddenly I found myself facing a God that I had never heard about in Sunday school. A God that apparently wanted me to let go of my dreams. Why would God want us to let go of our dreams? Because anything I am unwilling to let go of other than God is an idol, and I am in sin. I realized that my good work had become an idol that defined me. Rather than finding my identity and my relationship with my Creator, I was finding it my intense drive to do good work. Wait a minute, aren't we supposed to do good works? Sure, as Paul said to the church in Ephesus, for who we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, there you go. Let's get busy. God can't steer a parked car. Wait a minute, read the second half of the verse. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, walk in them, not pursue them spastically, not run frantically searching for them until we drop dead. Walk in them. God had in mind, even before I was born, the good work he wanted me to do. It's not about scrambling around frantically searching for it. It's about listening. It's about being open to his whispers, no matter how quiet. The problem with the saying, God can't steer a parked car, is that while it is cute, it is not biblical. When people of great faith in the Bible don't know what God wants them to do, They don't do anything. They wait on him. I've just recently learned how to wait on God. So what does it look like for me? Well, after Big Idea Productions fell apart and all the leftover pieces, including many of my friends, were swept up and moved to Nashville, Tennessee by the new owners, because apparently that's where all the Christians are supposed to live now. (laughs) I spent some time hurting just hurting. And then I started reading the Bible. I'd taken a small office in in the Chicago area. It was walking distance from my house, just for me. And I'd get up in the morning and I'd walk down to the office and I would sit with my Bible and I would read and I would pray. I didn't have an agenda. I didn't have a sermon to write. I didn't have a video script to compose. I was just reading And praying. And I was anxious at first, waiting for God to reveal the next big thing He wanted me to make, the next big mountain He wanted me to scale. Until after a few days turned into a few weeks, and a few weeks turned into a few months, I realized I didn't care as much anymore about what I would write, what I would do, what the next big thing would be. Eventually, it struck me that I no longer felt the need to write anything, to make anything. Whatever needs I had were being met by the Scripture I was reading and by the life of prayer I was developing. My passion was shifting from impact to God. It took several months, but what I was starting to feel I can only describe as a sense of of giving up or, or dying, which was scary because I wasn't sure exactly what it was that was dying within me until one day it was clear, it was my ambition, it was my will, it was my hopes, my dreams, my life. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis' Voyage of the Dawn Treader involving a boy named Eustace who is so prideful and selfish and greedy that he wakes up one day to find he has literally turned into a dragon. Life as a dragon proves so lonely and his dragon skin so uncomfortable that he soon longs to be human again. He longs to be back with his friends. And in this scene, Aslan the lion leads Eustace the dragon down to a pool of water. Eustace slides into the pool and tries scraping at his dragon skin, but he can only dislodge a couple of scales. And then Aslan says, lie down, this is going to hurt. And with a long, terrible claw, Aslan digs deep into Eustace's dragon skin, ripping it wide open. It is the most painful thing he has ever experienced. But when it is over, he stands up, a boy again, reborn. I realized God could have spared me from the pain of my company's collapse. He could have spared me from the consequences of my own mistakes And missteps, but he didn't. And it wasn't about God and my big idea, it was about God and me. My misplaced sense of identity and value were dragged kicking and screaming up onto the altar and now they were dead, ripped apart like dragon skin. I realized this when I heard myself say to my wife one night, I don't want to write anything. I was ready to be done, if that's what God wanted, to just rest in him and let everything else fall away. And then a week or two later, I woke up in the middle of the night with a story in my head, a story that practically wrote itself, a story that was so simple, so pure, and yet captured such a deep spiritual truth that the first time I read it to my wife, she cried. And I thought, oh, is this how it's going to work now? The next week, another idea came, and then another, and another. And before long, I had more ideas than I knew what to do with. Some ideas so small, I could lose them between the cracks and the cushions of the couch, and others so big, they took my breath away. But every idea came either during or was confirmed during a time of waiting on God. These ideas came without an ounce of anxiety about how big they should be, how far they should go, how many lives they should touch. If big idea productions felt at times like rolling a giant boulder up up a hill this felt like gliding on ice why is it so vital to wait on god If I'm not waiting on God, I cannot be obedient to him because I'll never know what he wants me to do. I need to put my nose in his word every day. I need to put my knees on the ground before him in prayer every day. And I need to be quiet enough to hear his whispers, whether they come directly from him or through emails from a woman I have never even met. If I'm so busy pedaling my little car that I cannot hear his directions, I am useless to him. And even if I have his directions, if I make them more important than him... I am useless to him. So what's the point? What lessons should you learn from this? The first is very simple. God loves you. Not because of what you can do, or even because of who you could become if you tried really, really hard. He just loves you because he made you just the way you are. In fact, and this one blew me away, God loves you even when you aren't doing anything at all. Secondly, when it is time to do something for God, and that time will come soon enough if you're listening, don't worry about the outcome. Don't worry about the 30% more or the 10% less or the massive change that gets Christianity Today magazine to call you to ask what's going on in Vancouver. Don't worry about that. That's none of your business. That's God's business. Your business is simply to do what he asks you to do. And finally, and I'm very serious when I say this, Beware your dreams, for dreams make dangerous friends. We all have them, longings for a better life, a happy marriage, world-changing work. But dreams are, I have come to believe, misplaced longings, false lovers. Why? Because God is enough. And he's not enough because he can make all our dreams come true. No, you've got him confused with Santa or Merlin or Oprah. The God who created the universe is enough for us even without our dreams, without the better life, the happy marriage, the world-changing work. God was enough for the martyrs facing lions and fire, even when the lions and fire won. And God is enough for you. But we can't discover the truth of that statement when we're clutching on to our dreams like security blankets. We need to let them go. We need to give them up. We also need to know the difference between a dream in our culture and a dream in the Bible. I talk to a lot of college kids at Christian schools who have gotten them completely confused. Uh, In the Bible, no one says, I have a dream. They always say, I had a dream. It was last night while I was asleep. Uh, In the Bible, dreams are not literal. If someone says, God gave me a dream to launch a new cupcake shop, that's not a biblical dream because in the Bible, you'd have to interpret what cupcake means. What does cupcake represent? When people had dreams in the Bible, they were symbolic. They were metaphorical. If you have a literal dream, it's an idea, not a dream. And finally, in the Bible, people are almost never excited about their dreams. They are number one, confused, or number two, terrified. (laughs) If you're excited about your dream, it's an idea, not a dream in the biblical sense. And it's not wrong to be excited about ideas, it's wrong to turn them into dreams, which can be idols. In 2003, my dream died. And I discovered, once all the noise had faded away, what I had been missing all along. The impact God has planned for us doesn't occur when we're pursuing impact. It occurs when we're pursuing God. In the words of the psalmist, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for the megachurch I hope to plant. (laughs) So my soul pants for the million DVDs I hope to sell. No, not for the impact I can have, nor the megachurch I could build, nor for the mark I could make on the world, not for the happy marriage, the healthy child, the meaningful work. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Let it go, give it up, let it die. Let Christ shred your dragon skin and lead you into a whole new life. Trust me, it's worth it. This is hard for us if we're entrepreneurs, because entrepreneurs live and die by their ideas. They live and die by their goals. They live and die by their dreams. Learning how to hold them loosely so they don't become idolatrous. Learning how to be okay without them. I talk to college kids all over uh, the country, and uh, they'll come up to me with their ideas, which they usually say, that I have a dream. everyone's Martin Luther King Jr I have a dream, what's your dream let me hear your dream the first thing I ask them now is rather than saying well here's how you could go raise money for that great idea of yours is would you be okay if that never happened and in the half a second that follows that question in their face I can tell if they're holding on to that too tightly to be healthy for themselves every now and then a kid will say yeah, I'd be okay I say, good, let's talk about your idea. Let's see if we can bring it to life. But if that's what you're holding on to for your identity, you will hurt yourself and you will hurt those around you. So let it go. God doesn't ask us to let go of our dreams because he's mean. He asks us to let go of our dreams because he's trying to keep us from hurting ourselves and those we love. And the work that God wants me to do flows out of my loving relationship with him and with others. If I'm so obsessed with my own dream that I don't have time for the girl who's bagging my groceries at the grocery store, I am not walking with Jesus. Um, I hope that helps. Let me close in prayer. Dear Jesus, Thank you for the hearts in this room. Thank you for the uh, radically countercultural action of attending a Christian business dinner in our world today. Uh, we've come to this place to be equipped so that someday we can, we can run the good race, we can fight the good fight, and someday we can hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We all long for impact. We all long to make the world a better place, but let us never confuse the work we do for you with our relationships with you. Let all your children in this room find their purpose, find their beauty, find their meaning, and find their joy in you and you alone. Thanks for listening to this ELO podcast. You can subscribe to the Entrepreneurial Leaders Monthly Newsletter to stay informed of new ELO resources and upcoming events. You'll find the link in the show notes.